Hi, Dr. Sam Waldron here. The fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. Most men who need a seminary education can afford it the least, and no seminary is fully supported by student tuition and fees. We rely on the generosity of our supporters and friends. Would you give today and help us to make informed scholarship with pastoral heart affordable for the next generation of gospel ministers? Visit cbtseminary.org give to learn how you can help. You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. For this final study in the life of John Fawcett, I want to focus on two areas. The first are some personal stories and assorted details of his life that I hope will make him become a bit more human. One of the challenges in giving a pastor's biography is that we can so fixate on the spiritual life and church accomplishments that we lose track of his humanity. Knowledge of his early life, education, marriage, children, travel, health, appearance, outside interests, politics, and a myriad of other things remind us that he was like us. Often, at least, a few of these things profoundly affect a man's ministry, and the trials, weaknesses, disappointments, sins, and failures of his life help us to look to Jesus as the only perfect shepherd. We should honor and learn from men like John Fawcett much more than we do, but we should also rank them where they would want us to rank them, as vessels of sovereign grace, as the chief of sinners, and the least of saints. Reformed Baptist hagiography doesn't revere God nor spiritually help us. So here are a few generally unrelated and personal tidbits about John Fawcett. You may recall he was struck with gallstones or a similar painful affliction in his 30s. For about a decade, he was limited by this pain and weakness, losing weight and fighting a constant fever. But at the age of 43, his health improved. He stopped taking the prescribed medicines, which I suspect were doing much more harm than good, after selecting a new doctor. This man also recommended exercise and dietary changes. So he took up turning wood on the lathe. Today, these are electrically powered machines. But in his day, the turning mechanism would have been driven by his own leg power. It must have been an excellent cardio routine. After this, he turned to bookbinding, which as a great reader himself must have been very satisfying. His son relates how his better health led him to make another change. He ordinarily wore a large white wig, but decided to wear his own hair. Between this change and his healthier complexion, he was said to look much younger, even to the point of not being recognized by others who should have. There are only two likenesses of him that I know of. One is of him in what appears to be middle age. He doesn't wear a wig in it. The other is at age 75, drawn just a year or two before his death. It shows him at his study 
turning toward the viewer with a kind of stocking on. It appears to be an excellent drawing. His son tells us that at this age his head was always cold, and so he constantly wore a velvet cap for warmth. That is clearly identifiable in this drawing. Fawcett was a cultured man for this situation, and he loved music. It was his main way of relaxing. Some of his favorites included the 100th Psalm tune of Luther's played on the organ and Handel's Messiah, both words and tune. He loved nature and especially trees. Perhaps this is another reason I find Fawcett to be a kindred spirit, for I have always had a fascination with trees, especially old and large ones. The two homes he lived in after his moves were known as Brearley Hall and Ewood Hall. They were mansion-like, raised up in the centuries before by rich local families who rented them to him. Sometimes in poor shape, they nevertheless gave the outdoor space he loved for retreat and the rooms needed for teaching school and raising his growing family. They still exist today, and they can be visited in person or online. I own one pamphlet that Fawcett owned. It is his funeral sermon by Abraham Booth, given at the death of a Miss Ann Williams in Booth's congregation in 1772. This is the second 1773 printing. Fawcett signed it in the upper right-hand front page corner as John Fawcett, 1773. So this was had by him when he was still at Waynesgate. The script is beautiful, with a few lovely flourishes, but clearly strong and readable. I suspect it reflects his nature. As he aged, illness returned. In 1816, his legs were too weak to carry him to church except using crutches. His final sermon was on February 26th from Nahum 1-7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. A few days later, he came down with rheumatic fever, so he was moved to his son's home for care. But his troubles were compounded at the death of a longtime servant and then a grandson. He patiently continued on, losing his eyesight in a paralytic attack, or what we would call a stroke. His entrance into glory came on July 25, 1817, in his 77th year. The second area I want to quickly highlight are four doctrinal and practical convictions of his. First, he believed in Baptist associational life. He was a prime mover in the late 1700s in starting the Northern Association, Yorkshire and Lancashire it was called, with its shared meetings and circular letters. Second, he believed true Christians should live in unity of heart with each other, even when they had differences. He didn't give way to men on principles he believed he owed God. So, for example, he was a thoroughly convinced Baptist, but neither did he despise, belittle, or act less than loving toward Christians who had other understandings. Third, he believed in the free offer of the gospel, or what he called the gospel call. Fawcett's view was that mankind in general had an obligation to believe and receive the gospel. As his son relates, quote, it was a sentiment he maintained with great firmness. 
Here is an extract from one of his first publications named Advice to Youth that clearly shows his belief in the free offer and that he held this before he knew of Andrew Fuller or his important work, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. The text is, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. In explaining what is included in remembering him, it is observed that it must intend more than a bare recollection of him. It includes a remembering him according to the revelation that he has made of himself. It takes in what we are to believe concerning him, the confidence we are to repose in him, and a practical regard to his commands. Should anyone say, is this required of fallen man? I answer, who can doubt it? That considers the law which we are under as the descendants of Abraham. I'm sorry, of Adam. And now here is the important sentence. Though man has lost his power, God cannot lose his authority, nor the law its binding efficacy. But should it be inquired further, since man has not power to know, love, and fear God himself, why is he called upon to do it? I answer, this is the same as if you should ask, since man is now become carnal in his mind at enmity with God, why does the law of God still require him to love him with all his mind, soul, and strength? But further, since we know it is so, why should we puzzle ourselves about the reason why it is so? If we could find out no other reason why the judge of all the earth has appointed this, his will and good pleasure alone should satisfy us. If in his word he calls the young to remember their creator, the sinner to repent, to believe the gospel and be converted, though they have in themselves no power to do it, let us remember that there must be some reason for it, some propriety in it, though we should not be able to discern the one or the other. And he goes on for quite a while defending and explaining that. Fourth, he was an early and strong supporter of the Baptist Missionary Society. This fits, of course, with the previous doctrinal point and his own evangelistic practice. He longed to have the truth extended across the globe. One of his students, William Ward, of course, joined William Carey as one of the three pioneering Baptist missionaries to India. In all of this, Fawcett is an excellent example of an educated ministry with no tinge of hyper-Calvinistic leanings. He is orthodox, pastoral, and peaceable. I heartily recommend the study of his life and works as one of the faithful men who are worthy to teach others also. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace. Thank you.